Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome, welcome to Movie Oubliette, an Antipodean podcast with me, Dan, right down under in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, all the way up in Cambridge, UK. In this podcast, we drag a forgotten and forsaken film from the depths of the dungeons to decide whether to set it free into the world to be praised anew or whether to cast it back down into the darkness, which is the oubliette. We will mainly be discussing fantastic cinema, so horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because those are the best genres that tickle our fancy. (laughs) Conrad... How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> Anything in the mailbag today? Uh, well, we, we have a scary tweet. Uh-huh. We have one from uh, Josh Sentry who says, If one of you is in the city of Melbourne, I'll stalk one of you. Guess which one of you I'll be stalking. I'll give you a tiny hint. I live in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I guess that's going to be good to hear you, <laughs> and I will continue to be blissfully stalker-free. So good luck with that. <laughs> mm. All right, I'll look out for any joshes that come my way. <laughs> How about you? Did you get anything in the mailbag? So I think we got an email from Isaac, last name, who I think his real name is Isaac Sutton. And he gave us a whole bunch of recommendations for movies to review. And those movies include Push, Panic Room, and Planet of the Apes. I think one of the original 70s versions. Mm. Yes, and I haven't seen those in a very long time. Yeah, it's something to consider. So as always, listeners, we are always open for recommendations because we're going to run out (laughs) sooner than later. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that because this is only episode 10, but that in itself is a bit of a milestone for us, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Episode 10. So we are finally in double digits. Very excited. Yes. So shall we chink a glass together? I've got some tea and you've got some... Um, Juice, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. May there be tens of more episodes (laughs) in our future. (laughs) Wow. What is that noise? Yeah. Is is that is that the movie we're doing today? Something is hammering really hard against the oubliette trapdoor. Yeah. <laughs> I better go and investigate. Yes, yes, please. Okay. Oh, oh I see. <laughs> Dizzy like a fox. It is indeed our selection for today, uh-huh. which is the haunting. Ooh. Spooky. Yes. 
the 1963 version directed by Robert Wise and not mm. the horrific 90s abortion directed by Jan de Bont. <laughs> kind of the archetypal haunted house movie, and it features uh, Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson and Russ Tamblin as four people who... Uh, as a scientific experiment, go to an empty house that is long rumoured to be haunted. One of them, Dr. Markway, is this uh, paranormal investigator and he recruits two women, Theodora and Eleanor, uh, who uh, have had experiences with the supernatural before, uh, to come along as his um, study partners to see if they feel something or experience something. And Luke Sanderson, played by Russ Tamblin, comes along. He's there just to make sure that no funny business goes on <laughs> and that everything's above board. He's actually the nephew of the lady who owns the house. And as the film progresses, the four of them experience various supernatural and terrifying things or maybe they don't it's it's up for grabs and it all culminates unfortunately in dramatic loss of life so yes uh, the haunting very intriguing and uh forewarning mm. i guess major spoilers to everyone so <laughs> please do go out and watch it before you listen to the rest of this episode yes please do and by way of a spoiler for this episode, I will tell you now that we have a special guest this time. Uh -huh. Let's find out who it is. Yeah. Right, we are back to talk about The Haunting. Ooh. And as we teased before the break, we have a special guest today. She is a writer and producer of movies. Uh, her name is Sarah Daly. Hey, guys. Hello. <laughs> so, Sarah, you and... Is Laurie you, your husband? Are you married? Uh, no, we're not married, but okay. cohabiting. Okay. <laughs> cohabiting. <laughs> It's romantic, huh? <laughs> you both have a production company together. Yes, um, together we set up Hex Studios, um, which is basically a horror production company mm. based in Scotland. Wow! Cool. Right down our alley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've done you've done quite a few features already, um, and you're in the process of filming another horror. Yes, we are indeed. This is our fifth feature i think it depends whether or not you count the first one that we made for like 20p and a packet of crisps <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> um but yes the newest one it's called uh, automata or at least it's currently called that uh and it's yeah it's quite an epic wow <laughs> mm, yeah I've, I've seen some of the photos from shooting and, and it looks insanely amazing oh thank you very much it'll certainly be insane <laughs> yeah yeah great so we are talking about the haunting today conrad and sarah thoughts well i think uh sarah it's fair to say this is a film that both of us were very keen to talk about because it's one of our favorites is that right that is absolutely right Conrad. Mm. Yes. so it's 
kind of a trailblazer, I think, this movie, because when you, you think of haunted house movies, this one, I think, really is among among the first and certainly one of the most highly thought of. I think it's one of Martin Scorsese's top 10 scariest movies. But it's really a film that's grown in stature since its release, and that's why it's in the oubliette, because when it was first released, it bombed and it was not thought of particularly well it didn't make its money back at the box office mm. yeah so that's why it's in the oubliette and I, I often find if I ask people have you seen The Haunting to my horror they say yes and they start talking about Catherine Zeta-Jones <laughs> because of course she was in the remake which is just terrible but the original film it's a fairly simple setup it's four people mm. in a house trying to see whether the supernatural exists, almost like an experiment. But as with all of these pressure cooker type movies, what it ends up being is more about the individual people themselves because what the haunting seems to do is bring the worst out of them or at least prey upon their weaknesses. At least that's one of the things that I really enjoy about it. Sarah, what did you think? Yeah, um, it's it's a, such an interesting one and you can almost see why people didn't really get it at the time because when you break it down it's very simple like it's such a simple film and and on first watch it almost seems like yeah maybe not that much does happen in the film in terms of action mm. or scares but it's because each frame almost is so full with symbolism and meaning and emotion that um it's really the characters journeys and the what you don't see that makes this film great. It's just such a masterclass in building atmosphere and dread. Mm. Yeah. Yes. That that sense of dread that you get in films like um, The Blair Witch, where you're just dreading the next night. Yeah, yeah. And you know that that scene where they're all, well, the two, two ladies are in the room together and the banging on the door? Mm. Like, that shouldn't be scary. It's so simple. And it goes on for such a long time, but it's just terrifying because you're put in the room with them mm. you know it, it doesn't have to be this terrifying monster all you need is the simplest of things because you imagine it happening to you and if if you were just in a room hearing that banging outside your door that would be terrifying you don't need to see anything you just need to imagine <laughs> mm. what's there Yes, I was looking forward to hearing what Dan thought about this because being the sound design expert that he is, this is a film that hangs on uh, a lot of sound design, I think. Yeah, so I hadn't seen it before and I've, I've heard a lot about it. Um, so I watched it twice. The first time I was a little bit disappointed mm. in terms of seeing special effects and I, I wanted more things to move around and walls to like bend and, and that sort of thing but on the second watch I really like you said Sarah I really got into the characters a lot more and realized that it, it almost seems like the movie isn't even about the haunting it's mm. about these people dealing with their own demons and it was really interesting character study in terms of um film also that scene with the two women in the bedroom and there's banging on the doors i i found that so suspenseful and mm. uh, i watched it with uh with my wife and she said that when we were watching it she said i can feel my heart beating when she was watching it <laughs> yeah. because there's there's not there's not actually a lot of apart from the banging between those moments there's actually no score and barely any sound mm. so 
So you're just kind of waiting for something to happen. And it's, yeah, very tense. It is. Yeah, yeah I think the si- the silence makes it so much worse because you, every time the silence comes, you think, is it over? Please let it be over. And mm. then it comes back worse than before. It's, it really helps to build the tension, just having that those little breaks between that the escalating sound, it's it's so clever. Mm. One of the things that's interesting to talk about this film in terms of why it has the impact that it has is thinking about what it isn't. Given that it's a film from 1963, given that it's a haunted house movie, the fact that there aren't any dark and stormy nights, there isn't really an antagonist, there isn't a particular person possessed or a particular ghost that's named that has to be exorcised it's 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 kind of interesting to look at what this film isn't i would say yeah i think it's it's the ambiguity that makes it so sophisticated Mm. that there's so much that is not shown i think it's a confidence i guess in the filmmaking that they feel like they don't need to show things because they know exactly how to make nothing terrifying (laughs) Yeah. Well, Robert Wise got that from Val Luton, of course, because he he was a student of, of Val Luton, who famously did the cat people. And yeah, was just imbued with this sense that not showing people and letting their imagination do its worst was much more effective than bringing out the rubber monster. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't realise that, um, that uh, Val Luton had been an influence the first few times I'd, mm. I'd watched The Haunting until I watched it this this recent time. It makes total sense, of course. Yeah. Um, you definitely see the influence there. Yeah. Well, Robert Wise is an interesting director because he's probably most famous for musicals like The Sound of Music and West Side Story, but he did also dabble in, in the genres that we love. He did the first uh, full-length Star Trek mm. uh, motion picture um, he's also responsible for things like the Andromeda Strain, which I love, and the day the Earth stood still. So there are various landmarks of science fiction and and horror cinema that he actually uh, helmed. And I think it's no small feather in his cap to have created the archetypal uh, ghost story as well that that everybody sort of points back to when they're looking for references in in modern films. Mm. Yeah, he's he's an incredibly diverse director, um, but I think that probably helps him in that he's not following the usual tropes or cliches of horror because maybe he's not 100% into the horror genre, if you know what I mean, in the traditional sense. Mm. So he's able to bring these lessons from other other genres and other types of films that are more based on characters and, and emotion, which, of course, all good horror should be, but that doesn't mean that everyone necessarily follows those sorts of rules. No, indeed. I think also uh, another aspect of the film that really struck me was uh, the set design, Mm. um, production design was just amazing. Like every room was so unique and ornate and decorated. And also just the amount of faces everywhere, just Mm. uh, statues and and eyes and faces in every room that made you feel like each character was just constantly being watched by an entity or something. Yeah, the whole thing is so voyeuristic. Um, Like even when it's just the camera being the, the eyes, you you always feel like you're you're spying on them. It's it's almost like one of those found footage horror films where you've got CCTV cameras everywhere, but obviously done in such a more sophisticated way here. <laughs> My favorite instance of that, which is so strange but so clever, is um, in the 
Are we allowed to give spoilers here? I'm totally going to give away the ending. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> just, just, just checking. <laughs> I assume everyone's watched this movie if they're listening to this. Mm. Um, so in in the the very end of the film where um, uh, she crashes her car, there's a reaction shot, but it's not a reaction shot of a person. It's a reaction shot of the house watching her with its windows. Mm. It's it's so clever. Like it it's the the kind of final culmination of the personification of this house as just evil, mm-hmm. like an evil puppet master. I thought that was so, so smart. Yeah. I, the the house really did feel like a, a fifth character, I guess, I, because I haven't seen enough haunted house horror, ghostly movies. Is this one of the early films that really made, you know, the house a kind of character I would say so and I think it does something that a lot of other films don't do which is that they tend to go for gothic castles and they tend to try and show the evil infestation it, it, it sort of manifests itself in sort of rot and and decay whereas Hill House is very ornate and mm. beautifully laid out. It's not full of cobwebs. Again, it's 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 sort of interesting what this film isn't. It certainly sort of makes all of the characters feel as though they're trapped under the weight of all this stuff. It's just a feast for the eyes, this movie. Mm. I mean, I, I felt like because each room was so packed with furniture and decorations, mm. you were constantly... As the film kind of got creepier and creepier and they were alluding to things moving around and and doors closing and opening by themselves, I was constantly just looking in the background to see if anything was moving and and just the amount of mirrors in every room as well just made it even more kind of creepy because you could see even more angles of the room. Yeah, they do look as though they are trapped in this thing. And I mean, there is a wonderful shot where Eleanor says, because you, you can hear her thoughts quite often, and when she first arrives in the house, she suddenly gets a very strong sense that the house is evil, that it's watching her, and that she feels as though she's trapped in it. And the camera pulls away, and it's framing her with the folds of this canopy over her four-poster bed, and all of the creases are all sort of gathered towards her head as though she's caught in a spider's web. There are so many details in there, and it's all lifted from this fantastically complex production design. Yeah, and it's such an unorthodox approach to horror. Like, I don't think I've ever seen another film that does this, where, as you said, everything is brightly lit, it's all very deep focus, so you can see everything. Mm. Like normally with horror films, you'd have, you know, darkened hallways and shadowy corners. and But in this, you can, every detail, and there are many details, are starkly just there for you to see. You know, your eye wanders around the frame and can, can find any number of symbols or faces, reflections. It's it's so rich and dense, but somehow yet it still works and, and creates a different kind of horror. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I I really enjoyed the framing of this film as well, like the use of camera work. Mm. And I felt like very economical use of camera work as well. There weren't a whole lot of cuts back and forth, you know, two shots. There were were a lot more long takes that kind of moved around the room. Uh, What did you guys think? Yeah, it seemed like the camera was constantly moving, um, Mm. which again gives you this sense of, almost like a ghost that's floating around them watching them or predatorially watching them almost. Mm, yeah. yeah, I think that the long shots as well give it more of a sense of reality and naturalism, like you really are there with them. Um, nothing feels 
forced or stilted. It all flows so nicely. Yeah, it's all motivated by character movement um, within the space. Uh, it's not necessarily like Brian De Palma or, or Hitchcock, where the camera is pointedly being used as another character. It's almost invisible, except in the sort of haunting experience scenes. And then the camera sometimes does stuff that I've never seen in a film dating back this far. It almost looks like Sam Raimi's style of camera movement. I mean, if we talk about the the terror in bed sequence where uh, Theodora and Eleanor are terrified in the middle of the night by these banging sounds that are reverberating through the house and going past their door. And then there are these sniffing sounds around the edges of their door as though some sort of animal is trying to get the scent of them and, and, and find out where they are. And the camera is rammed up against the door, sort of moving around the grains following this sound. I just thought this is a wildly original approach to that kind of scene that I'm sure nobody had tried. Well, maybe they had, but I certainly don't imagine it um, being in a, a horror movie from that period. No, it feels like there's not a single shot in there that isn't wildly original and serves a very specific purpose. Like mm. there's not not a single just functional shot, just standard stock shot. Everyone is giving you more information or building atmosphere or giving you a perspective from the victim or the predator. It's it's all so meticulously thought out and so bold. Mm. There is one interpretation of this movie that I have read. In fact, it was Nelson Gidding, the screenwriter's interpretation of Shirley Jackson's original novel, that this isn't a real experience. This is actually Eleanor having a nervous breakdown and Dr. Markway is actually her doctor and she's actually in hospital and the whole of this is just her freewheeling, insane imagination, what you're watching. Now, that didn't end up being in the script because although Shirley Jackson was intrigued by that interpretation, she said, no, <laughs> that's not what it is. But he was still intrigued by this idea that this might not be a real experience and it might just be in Eleanor's head, that there's a lot of that still in the film as it stands now. And I think that's a really a fertile area to explore in terms of the relationship between the viewer and the character and also the character and the and the other characters. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad, though, that they didn't go down that route and kept it ambiguous. I mm. think it would have totally spoiled it if in the end it had just been, you know, oh, but it was all in Eleanor's head. I really hate when horror films do that. It feels like such a cop out to me. <laughs> <laughs> or it's a dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, yeah. I don't like it. It's, it's a clever interpretation. But yeah, I think they got the balance just right in terms of what we believe is really happening and what might be happening in Eleanor's head. I feel like they feed into each other rather than cancelling each other out and, and make the film stronger for it. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and there is another interpretation that I come to sometimes, which is, of course, Eleanor is there because she's had a past experience with the supernatural, although she fervently denies it, mm. which is that uh, her house was once rained upon with stones, which is something that I think Stephen King picked up for Carrie uh, mm. later on. So it's sort of hinted at that she has telekinesis. She has the ability of telekinesis. And if that's the case, it could be that everything that happens in the house is actually her 
that she's doing all of it. Wow. So it is supernatural, but it's all her. But again, it's not definitely that. It's just it's there as an interpretation. And if you watch the whole film through with that in your mind, it does work that way. It does. Yeah. I, and I love, wow. I love that they've left it open for interpretation again. Mm. I think the, the right way to approach these ambiguous films is when the writer and director, they know which path they're going down, but they don't tell you. Mm. They let you decide for yourself. Um, I think that creates the richest experience in terms of the viewer because you want to be able to come up with your own interpretation. That's half of the fun, I think. Mm. And that's what creates a dense film that creates a world beyond the one that you're shown. It's interesting because, uh, yeah, the first time I watched this film, I felt a sense of disappointment because I felt like I didn't understand it. There was so much ambiguity and so much room for interpretation. And so when I watched it the second time, I felt like I actually enjoyed it more. And I think if I watched it a third time, I would enjoy it even more because there's so much stuff that you can connect and there's so much symbolism and metaphor to sort through that on repeat watches, it just gets more and more interesting. Yeah, because I, you feel like with, with films like this that are ambiguous and set up a lot of mysteries, you know that they're solid when on second viewing and third viewing they improve. Mm. Whereas there are some films that do this sort of thing where there's ambiguity, um, room for interpretation, but the more times you watch it, the, the more it falls apart, mm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, because they haven't really thought it through and there aren't really enough signposts there to tell you what you need to know. So I think that's a really great sign of The Haunting that every time you watch it, you find new things that further inform uh, what they're really trying to say. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think what The Haunting does well um, that a lot of horror films don't do well in, in that sense of ambiguity is The Haunting sets up really solid, non-stereotyped characters mm. that you can really kind of dig your teeth into and they're, they're interesting on repeat watches, whereas a lot of the times in horror movies, the characters are very throwaway and there's pretty much only one character every time. I mean, if you interpret it the way that, Conrad, the first way that you mentioned in terms of her being crazy and this is a whole just a hallucination in her mind. So you've got John, the character John Markway, and he's, I guess, her, her doctor, but he's he's also someone that she wants to be with. She, she falls in love with him in a sense. Uh, and then you've got Luke, who's just the wise guy cracking comedic guy that just says <laughs> silly things at the wrong time but he's very confident and kind of arrogant and then you've got the um Theo's character and she is almost what Eleanor wants to be she wants to be her, her she's confident she's sure of herself she's elegant she's fashionable so that's that's an interesting kind of take on it as well yeah Definitely. I mean, the the character of Eleanor is an interesting one. She's somebody who has never had an independent life. I get the sense that she's in her mid to late 30s. Mm. She's been looking after her uh, invalided uh, mother for 11 years, right up until the point of her death. And she doesn't have a home of her own. She doesn't have a job. And it doesn't appear that she has any kind of social life either. So she is a very repressed character and this is sort of this venture out to hill house is sort of the i get the sense it's the first time she's left the house 
uh, almost, and to watch her being put into this high-stress environment. And I think she's already deeply depressed, like clinically depressed. I don't think she's a very well person. And this situation just makes the whole thing worse. But what interests me about it is this isn't just a representation of your typical hysterical women being terrorised by something. There really is a a serious um, pathology to this. She is a very complicated character. And what you watch her go through is, is fascinating and deeply disturbing i think yeah i think the most fascinating thing for me um about the characters and probably about the film in general is that this is a horrific experience that eleanor is going through to anyone else this would be uh an absolute nightmare but there's a part of her that that feels that way but the bigger part of her is excited by it Mm -hmm. like she she loves the attention no matter where it comes from even if it's coming from this evil entity that wants to possess her this is a positive thing. You know, she's been so, so overlooked her whole life and so unloved that she is, she's basking in this. She doesn't want to leave. Mm. Even in the last scene where she's hurtling at this tree in the, in this car, she even says, stop it, stop it. Then she realizes, oh, but it's happening to me. And she really accepts it and closes her eyes and just smashes into the tree. It's She has accepted the fact that she's, going through all these experiences where previously she was at home just looking after her sick mother. Yeah, so it actually ends up being, it's it's a happy ending. (laughs) This is what she wanted. (laughs) Yeah, she says that line, something is finally happening to me numerous times during during the story and it is often at moments where you think i wouldn't want this to be happening to me but she's she's just thrilled that she's having an experience of any kind which mm. is really depressing yeah. it's really quite disturbing i think it's romantic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a love story between El- eleanor and hill house <laughs> it is yeah <laughs> I suppose we should also touch on Theodora, mm-hmm. um, who is a very interesting figure, played marvelously. I mean, all of the the actors are fantastic in this, but Claire Bloom is a, is a standout. She represents sort of an ideal for Eleanor in terms of she has her own independence and has her own uh, home, mm-hmm. and she first meets Theodora when when she goes to the house and then when they see Dr Marquay she's she characterizes them by their clothes by the way they look she says so i guess this is Theodora in velvet and uh, Eleanor in tweed mm. she just admires the fact that Theodora is so well put together and so outspoken i mean of course Theodora is entirely costumed in Mary Quant outfits uh, Mary Quant being a big British designer around about this time that sort of defined the mod era of the, the swinging 60s oh. in the UK and, and abroad. And uh, Mary Quant herself, she said that somebody who wears her clothes, quote, they're curiously feminine, but their femininity lies in their attitude rather than in their appearance. She enjoys being noticed, but wittily. <laughs> okay. So it's not women as passive object. Mm-hmm. She wants to be noticed, and, and Theodora, you definitely notice her, but she finds the whole thing sort of wryly amusing, which I think is really interesting as a foil 
for Eleanor. But of course, there is another aspect to Theodora that is strongly hinted at, which is the possibility that she is actually a lesbian, which again, for a film made in 1963, quite groundbreaking. It makes both her character and her relationship with Eleanor even more interesting, I think. Yeah, apparently originally there was a, a scene that was going to be at the beginning of the movie that set her up in in more obvious terms that she was gay. Um, but they felt that they didn't need it. And I don't think that they did either because no. the film is, again, so ambiguous in so many other ways that to spell things out would feel wrong. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing that I was shocked by when I was researching this film, I was looking up contemporary reviews of the film and one of them describes the film as presenting uh, Bloom's lesbianism or Theodora's lesbianism as somehow equally unnatural as Harris's susceptibility to ghosts. And it's no small wonder that a script that conceives lesbian in such bigoted terms also designates the nursery as the wellspring of all horror. <laughs> I actually think that's a totally wrong reading of The Haunting. I don't think The Haunting actually presents... Theodora's sexuality in any way as being abnormal. It is an accusation that Eleanor throws at Theodora, but notably when they're having a heated argument because Theodora has called Eleanor's interest in Dr. Markway out. I called her out on it and she's just lashing out at her and, and she calls her one of nature's mistakes. But again, it could still be ambiguous because Eleanor is such an inexperienced person. I'm not terribly sure that she would necessarily recognise or even know that Theodora uh, is gay. So it could be that she's just referring to her ESP. Yeah, I, I'm almost certain that that's what she's referring to. And And even if she was referring to her lesbianism, I hate when people extrapolate the things that characters say in a film with what the film is trying to say. Yes, mm. yeah. It's that's so small-minded and narrow. Um it and it just it just doesn't make sense because you can be satirical in in a film. You can you can have the exact opposite um thing to say than what the characters are saying. Yeah, you you're absolutely right and we mentioned this just in our previous episode where there was a character in it who's who's just an an out and out racist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the film is racist. It, it could be satirizing him, but we actually weren't all that sure <laughs> with that film. <laughs> but in this case, I don't see this film as depicting Theodora as, as certainly as a, a source of of horror. If anything, it feels to me as though a lot of the horror in The Haunting dwells from the oppression of women. Hugh Crane's first wife dies when her horse bolts and crashes. Mm -hmm. His second wife falls down the stairs and dies. Uh, his daughter grows old and dies in the house when her female companion, who's supposed to be looking after her, is too busy having a bit of fun on the veranda with the local farm boy mm -hmm. to, to notice that she's in distress. The companion, in, a, in another fantastic single-flowing shot, hangs herself in the library after climbing a spiral staircase with a beautifully presented coiled rope on a silver platter, which <laughs> I, I think is just marvellous. And of course, I think it's really Theodora and Eleanor that seem to be the subjects of the film's oppressive 
uh, terror, whereas Luke and Markway tend to just be distracted. They tend to be sent out of the house and they tend to be sent on wild goose chases. The next step that I wasn't quite ready to make is to figure out why. Mm. If there is an underlying theme to the haunting, is there something here about the oppression of women by men? Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> personally, I think that that's um, a result of the genuine, uh, straight down the line, supernatural explanation that was set up in the book. Right. In that this is Hugh Crane's house um, and he in some way is cursed or wants to replace his wife with these women. So I, I, I think it's probably, to be honest, as simple as that, okay. but has the effect of then creating a, a film that has these themes of man's oppression of women um, and how a man's desire to keep a woman controlled or trapped hmm. can lead to their madness or demise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly Hugh Crane is quite a malignant patriarchal figure that's hovering over the, the whole film. I mean, w one of the scenes that I find particularly hair-raising is, is the second uh, night in bed where Eleanor wakes up hearing, I think it's sermonising. I don't know whether it's Hugh Crane sermonizing to his children through the wall it's muffled you can't really hear it and you can just hear children crying and the camera is slowly pushing in on this wallpaper and it does this wonderful thing where as the scene progresses you can more and more see a face in this wallpaper but not in the way that they did in the 90s remake where it was some hideous early computer graphics where an actual face pushes through the wall. Oh, no. <laughs> just with very subtle lighting changes that make these eyes and this mouth become slowly more prominent. Yeah, so there is a sense that his oppression or his desire to control women is definitely ever-present, I think. Mm. I mean, because you've also got, um, portrays John, so he's he's trying to help Eleanor in a way to kind of deal with her her own demons. But in, in doing that, he kind of comes onto her and she falls for him and he, he forgets or doesn't tell her that he's actually married. And then mm. when she finds out, she's... Um, distraught and and so I guess it's kind of alluding to the fact that men are uh, scoundrels and always wanting to <laughs> be unfaithful with their wives um, I guess as well so that's a, yeah very it's so much to think about now <laughs> I almost want to watch the movie again yeah and as Sarah said I think you can watch it again and again and again and you can see more and more and more each time now it's time for Random Trivia! Okay, it's just the boys now, here with our usual standalone segment, Random Trivia. Dan, what have you got for us this time? Uh, oh dear, it seems like I had forgotten to look up trivia about this film, but uh, <laughs> do you have anything, Conrad? <laughs> Um, fortunately, I do, actually. Um, so John Markway, Dr. John Markway's wife, turns up midway through the movie. Actually, she sort of kickstarts the third act. Grace Markway. And she is played by Lois Maxwell, who, of course, played Money Penny in the first 14 Bond movies. She'd oh. already been Money Penny once in Doctor No in 1962. Then she did The Haunting in 63, and then she was Money Penny for every Bond movie up to and including View to a Kill, 
which was Roger Moore's last one. And then after Roger Moore retired, Timothy Dalton got a whole new money penny. And she's been played by several women since. But yes, Dr. Markway's terrorised wife is money penny. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Interesting you brought that up because I felt like Dr. Markway was very James Bond-esque. Like, he, he reminded me of Timothy Dalton quite a lot, actually. <laughs> yes. And actually, Richard Johnson mentions in the commentary that he was a candidate for Bond at one point in his career, uh-huh. but it didn't quite happen. So there right. we go. I think he would have been good. Yeah, I think so as well. I was hanging on every word that he was he was saying. He had some great quotes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that moustache. <laughs> I know, that moustache. <laughs> And that's our random trivia. Woohoo! One thing uh, I think we should talk about in terms of creating atmosphere was the score. Mm. How amazing was the score? (laughs) Yeah, and as you alluded to before, it's really interesting in the way that it knows when to shut up as well it mostly underscores the human drama the hauntings tend to be left to stand by themselves which i think makes them incredibly tense yeah i think it's again it's working so perfectly in tandem with everything else that's happening with the cinematography and the acting um that it just informs where it needs to lifts the the mood or or builds the dread where it needs to but then retreats when it's almost like it knows, <laughs> you know what I mean? That mm. that the scene needs to breathe and needs silence to work. The only scene where the score really stands out to me and in a, in a really good way is in the very opening scene where we're introduced to Eleanor and it's a really tense, unpleasant scene, but the score is really jaunty and happy <laughs> and it's yeah. it's so disconcerting, but it's so genius. Yes. Uh, because it is a, you know, it's a, it should be a happy domestic setting and, and, and situation, but the things that they're talking about are so, like, fraught. Mm. I found that scene really funny because it, the music, actually, to me, it sounds like ice cream trap music. Yeah. It's just yeah. this kind of twink, <laughs> twinkling in the background. Um, I didn't also realise, I think in that scene, that music is supposed to be diegetic. Is that the right word? Yeah. yeah. So it's supposed to be playing on a on a gramophone in the corner or something, but I didn't figure that out until right at the end of the scene, and where, where she turns it off, I think. Yeah, yeah she does. But yeah, I, I agree. That scene, music wise, was very very polarizing in terms of they're talking about her, um, you know, staying on the couch and how she wants to live her own life, and then it's just happy ice cream truck music in the background. <laughs> yeah. I guess it maybe represents the the idealism of Eleanor and her naivety or something along those lines. Mm. I found uh, the score as well. It's so amazingly weaved through the movie. Uh, so the theme of the music is is it's constantly changing to be played on strings, to play, be played on, on flute and, mm. and, and other woodwind. And it, it makes the whole, because it goes through throughout the entire movie, it feels just really unnerving all the time. And in one of the final scenes when she's climbing up the staircase and everyone is, is shouting to Eleanor to stop, get down, and the staircase is, is probably the most wobbly, unstable, unsafe staircase I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it's hanging from from like pieces of nylon or something. <laughs> and you've got the, the score kind of 
climbing up as she's climbing up. Um, and it's, yeah, just really unnerving. Also, the score doesn't really resolve ever. There's never a final dun, dun chord. It just keeps kind of descending and ascending in these kind of chromatic um, lines. It's really unsettling to listen to <laughs> as a musician yeah yeah and yes. it, it can so suddenly go from being quite mysterious and light or even romantic to suddenly this dark crash and it turns atonal and mm. and insidious and horrible it, it's like it's so unpredictable that it could can suddenly turn and just like twist and your stomach drops it's so clever mm. Mm. Yeah. i mean i also think that the theme itself isn't actually that horror sounding it's actually more kind of fantasy, whimsical almost sounding. So even though I had a sense of dread, it wasn't just the one dimensional sense of dread that you might find in other horror movies. Yeah, there's a sense of mystery and melodrama in it too. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very closely connected to Eleanor. So it's, it's almost like it's having a good time, but it's also coming apart at the seams yeah (laughs) so it's yeah it's it's a fascinating score and it's it's a constant source of frustration for the film score collecting community of which i'm a an ardent member uh, that it is not available apparently the original tapes are lost wow so there have been numerous campaigns to uh, try and mount a re-recording of it, but yeah, the uh, the tapes are lost. What a shame! Oh, that's yeah. a shame. It is. It's also worth mentioning the actual composer, which oh, yeah. I <laughs> forgot to say. His name is Humphrey Searle. Is that how you pronounce his last name? I think so. Oh, yeah, I believe so. And I, it's not a name that I have heard a great deal. I looked up his other films, and I haven't seen a single film from him. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I think he's mostly like an or- uh, uh, like a composer uh, of orchestral pieces, not necessarily uh, always film. So, yeah. uh-huh. but he did good. <laughs> he did an incredible job. I mean, every technical aspect of this film is is masterful, but underneath all of that, the film is still, I think, incredibly effective after all these years. Because I should say that the day this podcast will go out, 18th of September, is the 55th anniversary of the original release of the film, which is Ah. quite something. So happy birthday, The Haunting. (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Welcome back. And it's that very special time. Just the boys again. It's the Moobly Awards where we nominate a bunch of our favourite things in a number of great and exciting categories. Yes, starting off, as always, with our favourite quotes. And given that this film is so beautifully written and there are so many great lines of dialogue, I have a feeling you have probably several nominations Dan but let's tease a few out what stuck out to you I, I really I really love the opening monologue and also the closing monologue from Eleanor this is after she has been killed and it's just a shot of the very evil looking house and she says Hill House has stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more within walls continue upright bricks meet floors are firm and doors are sensibly shut silence lies steadily against the wood and stone of hill house and we who walk here walk alone just so poetic but very creepy at the same time (laughs) 
It is very creepy that it's a because of course it's spoken at the beginning of the film. But yes. It's uh, the ghosts who walk here walk alone, and now she's one of them, but she's still alone. Poor I know, Eleanor. I know. I I felt she was so nihilistic. Everything that came out of her mm. mouth was just incredibly depressing and very nihilistic. <laughs> yes, which Sarah found darkly romantic, which I think is a lovely take on it. I mean, one of the, the lines that I have written down that I particularly liked is where she talks to Dr. Markway about her habit of sleeping on her left-hand side because she read somewhere that it wears the heart out quicker. And I thought, isn't that the most telling piece of dialogue mm. that is the most cowardly and and slow way of committing suicide that i think has ever been suggested on film yeah very really very very sad but there are lots of uh, more witty lines as well i found uh john markway had a lot of great lines yes one of my favorite lines of his is where uh, during the opening monologue where he says that hugh crane died in a drowning accident Marvellous. I don't, <laughs> I thought of you, actually, when he said that, because you often describe things as being marvellous. I do. I wonder if this is where I got it from. <laughs> Maybe. Yes. Yeah, it could well be. But yes, he has a very, uh, a very distinctly black sense of humour. <laughs> so, on to the next category, uh, I guess, most 60s moment. Well, I, I think for the 60s, it has to be uh, the Mary Quant clothes i would say mm. there's nothing else about it that's particularly culturally specific to the time i don't think no i also think we should mention the tremendous amount of smoking all the way through the movie but i mean that's just <laughs> oh, pre-80s yeah. i guess um just everyone smoking all the time <laughs> kids around yeah. you know inside you gotta have your smoke yeah pretty much Best hair? Um, slash costume. I, I thought John Markway's character was very well put together. Always in a suit and, mm. and cardigan tie and slicked back hair. Mm. And a great moustache. <laughs> a great moustache. Yeah. I, the only thing I noted was that when Eleanor, on her second day, is really letting herself go and trying a new hairstyle, which Theo remarks on mm -hmm. as being something that's entirely for Markway's benefit... It still looked like it was entirely up and restrained by 500 pins to me. <laughs> yeah. So even when Eleanor let loose, she was pretty buttoned up, I thought. Mm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so what would be your favourite scene in the film? I think the first bedroom ghost banging on the door scene with um, Eleanor and Theo. And it's, you know, you've got the camera kind of panning across the room and you've got the banging on the door but you don't see anything and then um you've got the close-up of the the door handle and very unnerving scene great use of sound design no score at all and uh like i mentioned before holding my breath throughout yeah it's it's a fantastic scene and i think it's the one that everybody remembers when they've seen The Haunting. Mm. Definitely my favourite scene as well, although there is a close second with the wallpaper, the second night where she's staring at the wallpaper uh -huh. and seeing the face in it. Yes. Fantastic stuff. Cliché. Now, it's, it's kind of difficult, isn't it, with this, because 
did this film give birth to all of the haunted house cliches <laughs> or yeah is it is it guilty of them i don't know i mean yeah exactly because you know you've got the doors shutting by themselves you've got the the cackling laughter drenched in reverb coming from who knows where <laughs> you've got the the close up of the door handle turning uh, and and even the house itself is is such a cliche horror trope with its long hallways and its mirrors and its grand staircase so yeah if if, if you can say it's a cliche but then again maybe it invented these cliches yes i think in a lot of cases it probably did mm-hmm. and it certainly it sidesteps a lot of the most obvious cliches like the dark and stormy night there are no thunderstorms in this movie nope. uh, there are no creaking doors the doors close but mm. they close silently while you're not looking. So yeah, there's a lot of originality in there compared to the sort of gothic fantasies that came in the 30s and 40s. For me, the the one that sticks out is the mirror, the use of mirrors. Yes, it seems like the scene where uh, Eleanor is running wild through the house towards the end. And you have a shot that you think is just a shot of her running down the corridor, but then she suddenly collides with the image because you've actually been looking at a mirror the whole time. Yes. Uh, and that's... Great shot. And that feels like something that, that is... Uh, has. If it wasn't a cliché then, it certainly is now. Yes. <laughs> Favourite effect? I think there is only one effect in the movie. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think it's like the third big ghostly scene. And the door is expanding and contracting. Uh, by mm. itself, but I can't really figure out what's going on because it's because you've got it in you know in Nightmare on Elm Street where Freddy Krueger goes through the wall and you and the wall's just made out of you know spandex or something and he's just making shapes in the yes. wall, yeah. but it wasn't this was a full door with panels, so like it didn't look like that, but at the same time I wasn't sure whether it was stop motion. Or whether it was the panels had second hinges or something and it was pushing outwards. Yeah, very, very cool <laughs> effect, whatever it was. I think it is just a, a wood veneer door and there were just uh, guys pushing on it using not just a single sort of battering ram, but like a multifaceted contraption that was pushing against various different parts of it. But they are actually pushing against a solid wooden door and making it do that. Really? makes it all the more... Yeah, they're really making it do that. So it's quite freaky. It's an amazing effect, but it's all done practically and live. Yeah. Um, I mean, the actors said that when they were the other side of it, they were terrified of it. But then when they saw all the men sweating and grunting on the other side. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it wasn't quite as effective. But yes, that's my favourite effect. Uh, favourite sound? Uh, the sound was good. I liked the banging sound. It did its job, but it kind of sounded like the Foley artists had just this big warehouse full of building supplies. <laughs> and and the, the director said, do what you want. And they were just kind of smashing planks of wood and wooden boxes and metal piping around. And that's kind of what it sounded like. But, I mean, it, it did its job. And I, it was a big cacophonous ruckus 
but um, mm. I kind of, to me, it just sounded like <laughs> smashing a bunch of <laughs> building supplies around. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that bugs me now about the the banging is that it sounds as though it's a single bang that's on a loop, and mm. we're just sort of increasing the volume and decreasing it. Whereas, had it been something genuinely recorded, getting closer and going further away, I think it might have been more interesting. And yeah, uh, but I still think it's great. It's very effective. Mm, I do agree. My favourite effect, I think, is is the muffled voices, the muffled sermonising through the wall, right, and the muffled children laughing and crying. Again, a bit of a cliche, possibly, but um, it's. I certainly would not like to wake up and hear that in the middle of the night. No, not <laughs> at all. Uh, star rating for blood. Well, is there no blood? Is there any? <laughs> no. I don't think so. No. no, I think I think we can say, and it would have been black anyway. So I'm not sure. Not sure what we could say. Uh, and our final category: funny scene. I always love hearing which scene <laughs> you found. Well, I mean, unintentionally. Funny. There was just one line, one single line in the entire movie that I was, I was laughing at. Uh, there's a scene where Eleanor's on the balcony and she's looking up at the the tower. And suddenly she gets dizzy or something, almost falls off the balcony, and John uh, Marquay catches her. And then mm. Luke and Theo walk on to the balcony, and Eleanor's just explaining that she was looking at the tower and she got dizzy. And then <laughs> Luke replies, Dizzy like a fox, huh? <laughs> Which, <laughs> I don't understand. Don't understand that line at all <laughs> because do foxes get dizzy i don't think so. <laughs> i haven't seen a great deal of dizzy foxes around here as we said yeah <laughs> but yeah i think he's he's alluding to the idea that she was swept off her feet by mark way but mm, yeah okay okay but who knows <laughs> there was another scene that i only found funny because i expected something to happen and it didn't happen so it's in the third act where uh, the, the four characters are in the study and they hear the noises and then Luke is holding a bottle of booze and he drops it and the bottle does not smash. It just lands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing actually. I wonder I know. whether it was intended to be that way. Because you expect in all movies... Uh, especially horror that if someone drops a glass or a bottle it has to smash mm, yeah but no it's it stays solid it does it just sprays whiskey everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's the movies marvelous <laughs> Okay, it's time for the final verdict where we have to decide whether the haunting deserves to be released from the nursery to terrify a whole new generation afresh or whether it should be burned down to the ground and sown with salt. <laughs> uh, as you're our guest, 
Sarah, let's start with you. What what do you think? Oh, it should absolutely be released from the nursery. Um, I think this <laughs> is an it's an absolute classic and was a trailblazer in so many ways. And I don't tend to watch a lot of movies more than once, but I've watched this one like a dozen times. So that's got to say something. Mm, yes, for sure. As you say, I mean, it's one of those things that the more you watch it, the more you get from it. And I think that is really is the hallmark of a great movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Dan, what did you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I have to be honest, first time I watched it, disappointed, but only because I, I think I was expecting a cliche haunted house movie. And that's not what it is. It's a lot more, so much thought gone into the writing in terms of, of the characters and has been executed well in terms of acting. Score was phenomenal. And yeah, really impressed with the cinematography and the framing, with what they had and the use of sound design and very limited special effects that were very effective. Loved it and will release it any day. Yeah. Well, me too. I mean, I chose this one, but it's it's not one that I've forgotten over the years. It's one that I hold very dear to my heart. And um, watching it again for the podcast, I was still amazed and thrilled by it. I think it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. And I'm really sad that more people don't know it, or worse, people know the remake, which is... <laughs> travesty. <laughs> it really is. Um, but high hopes because um, there there is a newer version of it on the way. Mike Flanagan is directing a new adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel for Netflix. It's going to be a multi-part series rather than a movie. And Mike Flanagan is somebody that I respect. He's, he's done some great films, Oculus, Hush, Before I Wake, uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil, and even adapted one of Stephen King's most notoriously difficult to adapt books, Gerald's Game, very effectively for Netflix. So I am intrigued to see what he does with The Haunting of Hill House. But so glad to see that it will get renewed interest then. But I really do think that people should go back and look at the original and enjoy it. Yeah. And be terrorised by it. Watch it now, everyone. Yes, <laughs> definitely. So let's set it free. Let's set it free. Off you go. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so for next episode, what film will we be watching, Dan? It's your choice. Oh, well, I thought we should go back into the modern era, the 2000s, mm. 2006, in fact, to take a look Ooh. at the New Zealand film from my home country, Black Sheep. Ah, I have not seen Black Sheep. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, directed by Jonathan King and starring a plethora of all the New Zealand actors who only work in all the New Zealand <laughs> films because the country is so small. <laughs> oh, that sounds like it'll be really fun. Yep, it will be. Well, thanks, Sarah, for joining us on this haunting exploration. <laughs> the pleasure's been all mine, guys. Thank you so much for having me. If people want to follow your exploits online, where would they find you? Uh, the best place is probably um, our Hex Studios Twitter, which is at Hex Horror, uh, or on Facebook, again, Hex Studios. If you just Google us, you'll find us. Uh, and yeah, we'll be posting all our, our latest movies and developments there. Marvellous. Yes. And, and also uh, with mentioning that me and Conrad both know Sarah from a little website called Hit Record. So you can also find Sarah on Hit Record as 
Meta Forest. Yes, where I do some less horrible things. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to talk to us or keep up to date with what we're up to, then you can follow us on our socials. We are on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and everywhere. We are Movie Oubliette. If you want to email us, we are also movieoubliette at gmail.com. And if you're having a tricky time spelling Oubliette, it is... Sorry, there is just a racket coming from next door. Can you repeat that, please? And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or any other podcasting platform that you happen to be devouring us on, because we like it. (laughs) We do. We like all the reviews and all the ratings, please. (laughs) Yes, please do. So that's... Goodbye from us. Bye, guys. Bye. (laughs) Episode 10. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Juliet. The master of the house died in a swimming accident. Marvellous.